Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM in Asheville. And thank you, Robin Collier, for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. I'd like to also thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. And if any of you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I'd also like to remind you we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to look for some resources that'll get you started in that direction. So today I have a guest whom I've known since 2011. We met at the Omega Institute. I went to Omega to take a workshop with a terrific poet, Marie Howe, and also there was a fellow named Billy Collins, Mark Doty, and Patricia Smith. They were all teaching, and if you're in the poetry world, you may know those, already know those names. So I was there, and and Stephanie was there, and she and I shared a week of writing and getting to know each other. She's now involved in writing, involved in movement, involved in the physicality of engagement by way of yoga practices and other movements as well. So we haven't connected much in the last few years. So today we're going to get to know each other while you get to know Stephanie. So Stephanie, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, Nave. It's a pleasure to be here. I remember when we met, I remember it was summer, and I remember how everybody seemed to easily engaged. We were all sitting around on the floor. There was a fair amount of movement in that room of a hundred people. You impressed me with all the work you were doing with your movement then. So I would just love for you to tell us how you've carried that forward, what you're doing now. I know you're quite engaged online and with your clients and you have a, a business and you're running it and managing it. So how have you made this work for you? How does it work? Thank you for asking. The business is, is uh, called Lumi for Life, and the program is Writing Yoga, and it's writingyoga.com. And basically, it's been through several iterations. But when we met, I was teaching at the Omega Institute and had been during the summer teaching staff classes. And it incorporates movement into any practice that you have, any creative practice, because very often we're stuck in our heads as writers. And when we are there, we really can't move forward and ideas don't move and we become a block. So like a writer's block, right? So when you move, you automatically find that the energy will shift and ideas will pop into your head just, just by moving your body. I've taken that practice over time and formulated different modules of it so that you can use it if you feel anxiety or if you're feeling lethargic or if you're feeling just all over the place and scattered, how can you find your focus? So each one of these practices will incorporate a yoga pose, a journal writing activity, and some sort of breath work or mindfulness you mentioned writer's block. Usually I will talk about writer's block with writers 
on this show. I usually get to it a little later in the show. <laughs> you did bring it up. When you think about writer's block after having all of the experiences you've had with movement and freeing people from the burden of what they call writer's block, how are you seeing it these days? Do you see it as a, a big thing? It's it's sometimes very weighty for people. Oh, I have writer's block. I, I, I've always suffered from it. Is it large? Is it small? What's your relationship to it? And how do you help people frame ways of looking at it so that it shrinks? How does that work? People are generally hard on themselves and there's a lot of pressure. And with everything being available online all the time, that ups the game for people and it becomes even more intimidating. And I notice it's not just a matter of here's a book that I love, read this book. It's now here's the entire internet. <laughs> Go find a poet. And so many, you know, you can go to, I love like the Academy of American Poets or the Poetry Society. You can find any poet, at least some examples of their work online, anywhere in the world, which is a beautiful thing. But I think for writers who doubt themselves and say, well, how do I live up to that? That can get them stuck. So my philosophy really is you, you, if you just move and you have fun and you release judgment, which is what yoga teaches us to not have judgment, to be compassionate. All of those disciplines and practices and principles that come from the yoga sutras help a writing practice. And now we have judgment on the table. Mm -hmm. Judgment, as you're describing it, can be a liability. Can judgment also be an asset? And how does that work? What's the relationship between judgment as a liability and judgment as an asset? I mean, I have to judge my downward dog. Am I <laughs> judging it to be too rigorous? Do I need to back off? I have to judge the distance between point A and point B. I have to make a judgment about stopping and taking a breath. So mm -hmm. where does judgment, how does judgment play out from both ends of that spectrum for you? Uh, yoga would have an answer to that. And I would say it would be non-attachment. You do the work, you do the practice, and then you don't judge it. You you let it go. The more you can just think of it as a practice, writing is a practice. You have an hour on the mat where you're practicing, where you have your beginning, you have your middle, you have your end, and you just do the work without judgment. I know that my yoga practice kind of comes and goes. I've done it a long time. I've never judged it now that I think about it. Now, I do judge other things. I, I can be quite judgmental. It's not that I, I, I'm i not judgmental, but I, I don't judge my yoga practice so much. I get the downward dog and I think, well, that's pretty good. I'll just move on to the next one. And I'm sloppy. I fumble around and 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 yet I have a great time doing it. So I think maybe... I guess if I wanted to be more of a yoga practitioner at a higher level, I might find that judgment to be be something I had to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, a matter of doing the work, of really showing up, being fully present, and being fully engaged, and doing the work and looking at it more objectively. And that's not to say that we don't judge it. I mean, I, I am someone, my other hat is a school librarian, right? And I read and I judge work. I look at work 
and am very critical of it. But that's not to say uh, by judgment, we mean judgment can be something that's just, I see it more as harmful. I see it more as being critical, looking at things from a lens that relates to your personal experience rather than the experience of others. So it doesn't invite empathy. It invites a closed-mindedness. So when we're open to all possibilities, which is what yoga teaches us to be open to experiences, that helps to reduce the judgment. When you work with your students, people come to you, how quickly do they engage in the process? And would you unpack it a bit for us so maybe I could know <laughs> more about how this works so I could do some of the some of the exercises that you offer people. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, one thing we could do right now is just take a breath, <laughs> close your eyes and plant your feet on the ground and slowly breathe in through the nose. And breathe out. And we'll do it one more time, breathing in, letting go, and breathe out. And keeping your eyes closed for just a moment, noticing how your body feels without judgment. And if anything feels a little unsettled, Take one more big breath in, sending it to that area. And maybe you're feeling a little lighter. And take one more exhale out. Getting ready to return to the day and to the work in this present moment. So in a moment, we'll open our eyes. Coming back into the room. Namaste. <laughs> when I was doing that, I realized the reason I was curious about judgment was because there was something underneath that. And for me, it's worry more than judgment. Maybe worry and judgment are cousins. And as I was doing this little meditation with you, I thought, don't judge. And I thought, well, I'm not judging, but I am worried about the soreness in my back. I didn't judge it, but I worried about it. Maybe that's the same thing. Well, first of all, before we talk about that, how do you feel? Do you feel a difference in your body in that just minute that we spent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to just say thank you very much. The interview's over and I'm, we're going to go to sleep now. <laughs> no, no, it was very, very nice. Yeah. And it was so brief. That's right. And and that's really the key to it, that we feel we need a hour to meditate in the morning and an hour at night. And people say, I don't have time for meditation. And my answer to that is you have two minutes to sit at your desk before a meeting, before you shift gears. I just had a full day of work and now I'm coming to this interview. Take a deep breath <laughs> and then we can shift. So it's their short practices. And that's the whole goal about it is to make it doable because people are busy and they will not do things if they have to commit to too much time 
I, I sort of don't like that aspect of it. I wish we had much more time, but we don't. Well, I think you make a good point. Everybody has two minutes. And I lie to people a lot about how busy I am. I lie to myself as well. I may not be as busy as I think I am. I think it's a great thing to say, oh, I'm really busy today. I've got all these things to do and I have a full schedule and on it goes. But then when I inventory my day, maybe that's not true. Maybe we do have a lot more time. Maybe I have that extra hour or so. Do I take it? I Maybe I don't. So we're also talking about managing our creative energy. We're talking about managing our our time where to apply this um, limited gift of life we have. We don't have much of it, even if we manage to make it to 100 years of it. It's still a little blip. It's true. It's true. So what you say you noticed or to respond to that, how you noticed worry in the background, I'm happy to hear that you had that discovery because when we sit quietly that's where we can get information that we can't get anywhere any other time or anywhere else we can also get it from journal writing as you know very well i know all of your work with julia cameron and you know all of that what comes up from writing doing your morning mm-hmm. pages. yeah the idea of worry and judgment and that connection is very interesting and really the the thread i would say is it's about being present Because when we're not present in this moment, we can worry about what's going to happen in the future. We can worry about things we can't control. If we're in the past, second guessing our choices, ruminating about the way we reacted in a situation or what we could have done differently, that's not being present. And again, yoga teaches us just be present (laughs) right now. I'm having the great privilege of speaking with Nave and uncovering insights. And it's a wonderful thing. Like this is what it is. And then when I work with my students, I am hundred percent present for them and any client that I work with, that's all I can do. So when you have your students coming who are writing, how do they engage once they start this movement practice? I can see with your little, work that you did with me just now. How does the work change with the students who come to you? And do you have beginners? I often work with people who are far from beginners. They're quite advanced and they come to me just to juice the things up a bit. Let's have a little imaginative party or something. We we, we need to free ourselves. They want to be more, more free. How do your students play this out? For one thing, and one of the most important things I would say that I'm giving them is something I'm not giving them at all. It's it's just holding space, giving them an hour or two in a workshop setting where they don't have to answer the phone or cook anyone dinner or have any responsibility. And without having a workshop or having that time allotted, people will often not do the work that they can do. So when people are feeling stressed out, that looks in the body often like back pain, shoulder pain, headaches, things like that. And when you sit for a long time and write, the shoulders start to creep up like this. So you see people walking around with their shoulders. And in yoga, we say, 
don't wear your shoulders like earrings. Take them down and 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 relax them. And when we're moving, they might realize as their body frees. And again, in just a five minute exercise, something as simple as raising your arms up, if you do that, and you might want to try it with me, just raise your arms up and see what happens. Putting your arms up overhead and holding them there. If you were to stand here for a couple of minutes, you would feel this in your arms. It would build muscle if you were to stand here. It would also give you some energy. When we're tired and we're sitting and we're writing for a long period of time, especially a writer who's been working on a a novel or something big like that, just every 15 minutes, 20 minutes, raise your arms. And what about your writing? How, How do you engage the work you do as a writer? I would love to hear some work that you've written if you have anything handy. My work has really been in poetry. I have written novels that are not published, but I think my best work is really in poetry. So um, my approach has been experimental with, with writing. Really, it's living this life of a poet I've been writing since I'm a kid. Poetry is very well suited for writing yoga. Could you give us an example of your work? Yes. Yes, let me pull out some of it. Okay, so I have a a manuscript. I've been working on it, I want to say nearly 30 years (laughs) and and just revising it and revising it and revising it. And this book called Tempting Traffic is an exploration of living in the suburbs of New York City on Long Island and how it's changed. And I've revised it a lot. So I've put in new poems and I've taken out poems. It's been this thing that I've wanted to publish years ago, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened. And now it's just a completely different book. So I'll read the first poem. Seaside town built on a landfill. Big chief still guards the gas station alongside a fiberglass buffalo and totem pole from Pennsylvania. We'd wave. He'd nod. At least it seemed so. Our gated-in watchmen protecting us in an already protected childhood. I didn't know how far away from home he was, how misguided we were, my reality shifting in adulthood like sewage runoff, like sands migrating east since the Ice Age. Though for ages, I didn't know what snaked below our white, sidewalks. The city trash seeping through cracks after heavy rains, glacial waters tossing atomic error waste, broken washing machines, blenders, refuse tombs becoming new roads. In an inlet once called Great Waterland, our teenage selves ripped off halters and shorts, swam past the wooden no-swimming sticks, Dove head first over slippery docks, cheered at speedboats, rolled down sodden hills, lawn so green the color stuck to hair and feet, arms so tender they appeared boneless. Maybe this is why our systems are not quite right, why tidal ghosts seep into my sleep at night, laugh at barnacles and cells, lacerated sails, Hush. What an image of the green sticking to you because the lawns were so incredible. Can you do another one? This poem, again, I started 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. 
and did a lot of research. So the librarian in me really wanted to find out more about this site. There's a site on Long Island in the area of Massapequa where there is a fence and no house in the middle of this development. And the reason is they found skeletons of a Native Americans who lived there at this scene of Old Fort Knack. And the history had been covered in the Nassau Daily Star in May 7th of 1933. They found these skeletons of Indian warriors. There were about 120 skeletons, smashed in heads. So I went to the Long Island Studies Institute, and they have the architectural drawings of the site, and they showed the archaeologists who dug it up, and they had a sign placed there. The original one said, this is the site where Captain Underhill overtook the Native Americans. Then when they made it into a housing development, they took down that sign and wrote, Sachem Takapasha sold meadows to Oyster Bay townsmen in 1658 and 59. So they just said this was sold to the Indians. In 1958, the Long Island Press wrote about it. And they said somebody took the sign and misplaced it. So this could be a whole book that I did write a lot about. And I thought it might be a story because it's really just what happened in the suburbs. Long Island is the home to Levittown, one of the first suburbs. They only sold to white families. But, you know, back then, I mean, it was really a very interested and sordid history here on Long Island. And what really saddens me about this is that people don't know, people who live in the neighborhood don't know that this was the site of a massacre. It's not taught in history. You can't really find it. You have to really dig to find it. So I wrote a poem about it. Someone misplaced the sign marking the site. And it begins with those two quotes. You can see where a house was almost built over graves. A cobblestone outline. Spot where judge, archaeologist, historian finally made the bulldozers stop. I stepped slowly from my car, crunched twigs delicate as finger bones. Read a sign shoddily tacked to a chain link fence. Sachem Takapasha sold meadows to Oyster Bay townsmen, 1658-59. But this is where 120 men were murdered. This is where 120 men left their wives to wade through the wetland reeds, holding babies who cried when the sun rose orange and the sun rose red and the great waterland spilled, spilled at the slaying of dawn by invading men who slit throats. That morning, April 1653, five years before the date on the sign, 300 before sign denoting massacre was lost. Before Long Island picked at its sores, tore down anything that wouldn't fit on a 60 by 100 plot. I trace acreage without map, drive shell-covered highways made by ones carrying clams from Montauk to Canarsie and back. Beautiful. Talk a bit more about research. Often people I work with forget research is something that they certainly have permission to do, and people often don't do it because they think it's supposed to be some spontaneous utterance. Now, I love the spontaneous utterance, just bubbling up from out of my imagination, but I also love the way research pays off in a piece like this. And that line you had with the bones cracking when you stepped out of the car. Mm -hmm. what, what was that line again? 
Crunched twigs, delicate as finger bones. Crunched twigs, delicate as finger bones. It'd be hard to get more poetic than that. <laughs> and yet, if you put that in prose, it would remain as poetic as it is in the, in the poem. And sometimes I think prose can have room for all of that as well. So what about research? Tell people your view of it and how does it inspire you and maybe open some people to the idea they can do the research too. Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. And that's sort of where we're at right now. You can get a lot of answers from Google, but if you want a correct answer, ask a librarian. But really, we really come very far away from doing research and going right to sources. And we see how easily history can be erased. And that's what's being challenged right now in libraries everywhere, unfortunately. We, we want to just, you know, and what's happening, and you know, I don't want to get too much into politics, but really like what's happening in schools in Florida where you can't teach history, where you're limited to it. So if you do research, research is just what happened. And then you can make your judgment. If you're a parent and you don't like what's being taught, then read the book and find out what happened. And then you can explain it to your child in a way that makes sense for you and your family. You know, if people are being murdered, that's bad. Without doing this research, I would have not known what happened. I was curious about this site. Something didn't seem right. Something didn't make sense. And then when I did the research, I found out that it was a murder site and something that I had never been taught in all the years, you know, being schooled in a Long Island school. And I don't think it's really being taught anywhere. So a poem can teach it in a way where people can say, not roll their eyes at a, an historic tragedy, but rather look at it in a way that perhaps more empathetic. And what's going on now? People report, I've done my research and this is how I feel. And because this is the way I feel, this is the truth. Mm -hmm. I'm not in that camp. I'm more in the traditional journalistic research camp. Find four different sources, all the sources overlap and start to confirm something that you thought may or may not be true. And that's when you can start to have some faith in that particular fact, having enough gravitas to actually be true. Is that how you see research as well? Ideally, you would look at multiple sources and you would go to primary sources and really try to make sure that the information you're getting is from an authentic source. People are doubting authentic sources. I have friends who work for the New York Times and I know how rigorous their, you know, the standards are there. And yet it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, that's the New York Times, they're biased. You know, I, I think it's important to look at many different sources. I will watch every outlet, every media outlet, and I want to know what people are thinking. I'll watch Fox News and I'll watch MSNBC and I'll watch everything to just kind of get a sense of what people are saying. Things are just not getting researched and facts are getting twisted. So then coming back home to the poet, you, to me, to whomever's writing, we do have the power to do that research. We can dig until we're satisfied something, something is true. 
And yet so many people will cast doubt on it, even after you've done all the research. I'm sure there would be people in that community would say, well, that could not have possibly happened. There's no way that happened. I don't feel like you're right, so it's not true. And I don't really know what to do with that. I like to do these interviews, like this interview mm -hmm. with you, where we're trying to find a way into substance, into depth, into that has gravity. And I know those are all general terms. Like, for example, I'm here in Paris right now at my friend John's house. I can leave this door six floors up. And this afternoon, on my way down, I counted the steps. There are 77 steps from the top of the stairs to the bottom of the stairs where the door opens. Now, those 77 steps have been there since the building has been there. That was my research. I counted the steps, and I'm no longer estimating those steps. I say, I know they're for sure there are 77 steps. So that's the kind of research I think we can participate in. To me, that's research because I didn't know how many steps there were, so I went out and did a little investigation, and I walked down the steps and counted them, and now I know how many steps there are. When you're writing, writing a poem, you can actually research your emotional fabric as well. So there's the external research of, oh, 300 people were killed mm -hmm. and buried under this oak tree. And then there's the internal research, which is layers upon layers upon layers of mystery. Mm -hmm. And maybe you never really come to a conclusion with that. Well, again, sitting with it, reading it, sitting with it and presenting it and just seeing what that does, if it does anything. When I look at this poem, I want people to just think about where we live and think about how important it is to look at facts and history and not take anything for granted. I mean, this whole country is built, there are graves everywhere. I think we can't forget that. No, that's true. I mean, lives are lost every day in the name of progress. And that's been the case with America and other countries as well. Of course, it happens. All of the course, time. it's happening right now. I mean, see, this is why I need yoga, because I can car easily carry the weight of the world on me. It does open you up to empathy. And when I think about it, I think about the, the war that happened on this soil. And then I think I can't not think about what's happening in Ukraine right now and not being able to do anything about it. I can't go there and stop the war. We can all donate. We can do limited things. There are wonderful organizations that are out there that are trying to help people. We're taking families in here on Long Island. We have families coming, but not everyone's fortunate. I mean, we have one family that I know of who came here. She's a teacher and lost every single friend that she has was murdered by the Russians in Ukraine. And she's living here now. And yet she's able to just walk through her day and go shop at the same supermarket that I do. You would never know that she wasn't living here her whole life until you ask this question. And then, my goodness, you're here on your own because someone supported her to get here. And she was extremely fortunate. And not everyone is that fortunate. When we look at us and them, and we do that all the time, especially in this country, us and them, and and we're so polarized in this country, it's just heartbreaking because we're, we're not going to be able to save each other. No, we won't. We can, though, 
do what you and I are doing right now. We can trust that these little ripples that we send out across the metaphorical lake will have some effect somehow in the scheme of all of it. At least I would like to think so. That's what powers me. That's mm -hmm. why I, I do these things. That's why I have this interview with you. It's um, almost 11 p.m. my time in France, and it's about 5 p.m. your time in Long Island, and it's worth it. It's worth it to watch the night go by and have these conversations and hope that somebody listens and does something with them. Shifting just a little bit, but still staying with the woman you know in the grocery store from Ukraine. She's independent. She lost all of her friends. She's still standing. She's still shopping. She's still moving forward with her life, earning her living, maybe doing better than surviving. She certainly survived. In your own life, in your business, the work you do, you've taken advantage of much of the digital space. You're aware as a librarian, I always said librarians know everything. They, they were born that way. They didn't even have to bother to learn it. They just knew it. That's not true. You pay out, you spend a lot of time learning it for sure. But I've always admired librarians. So what are you doing in the digital space to move yourself forward, to stay relevant, current, active, engaged, and maybe as you talk about it, give some folks some ideas and experience experiences that might help them as they try to do their own entrepreneurial work. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that's been a really long road, kind of like this 30-year manuscript. I started out 25 years ago with Netscape, Internet Explorer, using code to make my own website. And it's gotten easier and easier over time, Blogger and WordPress. And now I'm using Kajabi, but they've made my life a lot easier because Everything is all in one. I, you know, I have the course, I have the website, I have my email, everything is in one spot. So whatever you use, I, I think less is always more, can easily keep track of it. I don't want to spend a lot of time developing websites on the tech end of it. So where I can minimize that, that's great. What about Instagram? What about social media? How do you engage? Do you have people that help you or are you doing all this on your own? Because I remember when I met you, you were very current then. So I imagine as you've stayed current. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have hired people along the way. And right now I'm working with a coach, but I do all my own postings. I, I had someone for a very short period of time sending me things to post, but it didn't feel like me. So Everything that I post is me and I spend way too much time thinking about my posts. My task for myself is to just post. I don't post that frequently, but what I post means something to me. Hopefully will resonate with people who I work with or my friends. I've been engaged with this a long time, so I'm always curious about what other people do. And I've never felt like I've gotten ahead of it. I'm on Instagram. I love to do the little reels and the videos. And I just like to walk down the street and say something and then post it and put some music under it and go on my merry way. I'm trying to think of ways to organize it a little more. I think one of the things that happens with people who do creative work, I know this is true with me, and I imagine it's with you. You have the 30 years worth of manuscript that you read two poems from plus a lot of other material. And I have a lot of material as well. 
sometimes I think I'm not a good shepherd of my material. I've got my flock of organic sheep running around all over the hills, but I haven't bothered to round them up. They're very happy out there, but they're, you know, sheeping along on their own. And I've often thought it'd be nice to gather up the flock a little bit, and maybe be able to offer the sheep in a more um, a coherent way. Do you feel like your sheep are meandering around the field or have you rounded <laughs> them up? Yeah, well, I think you're, I think you've rounded up your sheep. You have some, you know, wonderful publications and a lot out there, but I know you, you probably have even more that you'd like to bring into the world. And I think it's about making a decision. This is what I want to put out and this is how I want to do it. And deciding that that's going to be a priority when you're a teacher as you are, you're a cheerleader in a way for the, your students and you really want to see the work and help the work and you get excited about that. And then maybe you put yourself last, your work, and then you have to make a decision. No, I'm going to, this is what I want to do. So I do have a goal to, to get this book into the world sooner rather than later. Once that decision's made, I, I feel pretty confident that It'll be out there one way or another. It's a neat book. So I hope I live a long life, but if it doesn't get published in my lifetime, it, it's here. So someone might read it then. It'll it'll be out there one way or another. Well, you know, I have the, the shiny object syndrome. I must have been a crow in one of my previous lives because I tend to have the object in front of me. And then the shiny object comes along, another shiny object. And I'm like, oh, look at this or oh, look at that. So I deviate. I move around a fair amount. And so when you were saying, get one thing in mind and, and go for it, when I do that, it works actually. Mm -hmm. I do love the shiny object syndrome. I don't want to get over it. I like to, I like to chase the shiny objects through the path, down the gate, around the corner, into the garden. Oh, where did the bird go? I don't know, but here I am. Maybe there will be another bird come along pretty soon. Meanwhile, the project is back on the desk inside the house, mm -hmm. not getting done. So as we close, we're coming to a natural, nice end. Anything you would like to say about what you're going to be doing in the future, where you're headed, so people can pay attention to you? Well, I do have online uh, workshops and a monthly group where we meet um, and, and do a writing yoga session so they could experience it. And if anyone reading this show just wants to join in for that and not do the whole course, you would be welcome to. So we'll figure out something fun for that. Just send me an email and, and see. And uh, I do have a course and I have a, a book about this process coming out and just sticking with writingyoga.com, seeing what pops up there would, would probably be the best way to see what's next because I don't know. I think there might be a few surprises <laughs> in the future. And when do you gather on your, your weekly call? It's the third Tuesday of the month. Third Tuesday. And what time is that? Uh, six Eastern Standard Time. Six Eastern Time. Yeah. Third mm -hmm. Tuesday in the month. Well, that's that's really good. And, you know, I do a, an imaginative storm gathering every Saturday at 10 o'clock in the mountain time. Yeah, definitely. We'll check that out. Yeah. So that, that might be amazing. something to pass around to your students as well. Absolutely. I have already. Yes. I got, so love that idea. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I may try to come to New York more. And when I do, I'll give you a buzz and maybe we can see each other. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care.
And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Stephanie Mora. And like Stephanie said, if you'd like to know more about her work, writingyoga.com is the place to go to check all that out. We have about 12 more minutes until the end of the show. And with that in mind, I would like to look a little more closely at the idea of what research means regarding how you generate material. I'd like to start by proposing an expanded notion of research for so many years, I always thought research was something you did in the library. Research was something you did sitting down. You assemble all of the facts, you put them on a table, and you arrange them in some kind of order, and then expand on those facts from a storytelling point of view to put a story together. Before expanding out beyond this idea of facts on the table and stories put together, I want to make sure to say this is the core of what research is all about. It's essential to do that kind of work. For example, Alan Wolf, who writes young adult material, poetry and novels, etc., very successful. He's a Candlewick Press author, been with Candlewick Press for many years. He is well known for writing large novels in verse about historical events, like the Newfound Land, which is about the Lewis and Clark expedition, or the Snow Fell Three Graves Deep, which looks at the Donner expedition, or, or the Watch That Ends the Night, which examines in great detail the maiden voyage of the Titanic, and of course we all know what happens there. In addition to the three titles I just mentioned, Alan has been writing for years, as I said, and has many titles with Candlewick Press. Alan and I got to know each other many years ago when we were both developing Poetry Alive, a theater company that performed poems for school students around the country. From the first moment I met Alan going forward, and I worked with him quite a bit, he was always researching, he was always reading, he was always taking notes in his little spiral book that he kept in his back pocket. This was in the early 90s, and throughout the last decade of the 20th century, Alan worked on his craft, and he wrote a few books until finally, at the turn of the century, he submitted The Blood-Hungry Spleen, a humorous manuscript in verse about body parts for students. Alan's idea was to blend the science and the poetry together and make something entertaining so students could learn about how their eyes functioned, about their bloodstream, their heart, their liver, etc. Alan submitted the manuscript and Candlewick Press sent a contract along with assigning an illustrator to create this beautiful book which is still available on Amazon. The reason I bring this up is because even then Alan did deep research on how all the body parts worked and then he included that research in each poem in very entertaining and humorous ways so that students would pay attention, engage, and learn all at the same time. So research was one of the key ingredients in the work Alan presented to Candlewick Press, and to this day research is still an essential part of what Alan Wolf does as he continues to write more and more books for Candlewick Press. Alan quickly moved from The Blood-Hungry Spleen to other books for Candlewick Press, including The Watch That Ends the Night, the 500-page novel in verse about the sinking of the Titanic. Here's what you need to know about the research Alan did. He spent at least three years compiling everything he could possibly know about the Titanic. He once joked to me, you know, Nave, 
there's not anything about the Titanic that I don't know. Of course, he said it with a little bit of an ironic tone because you could spend 12 years researching the Titanic and still not know everything. Even so, three years of deep research, taking notes, compiling, putting everything in files, organizing your thoughts around how to tell the story, including some fictitious parts into the narrative. It is a fictitious novel based on historical events. And finally, getting ready to write sitting down and then generating the work. The research carried Alan's storytelling verve into deep thinking around how it must have been in the beginning, floating on the sea, hitting the Titanic, and then the aftermath. So Alan has had a very successful career as a writer, combining his traditional research approaches with his imaginative research approaches. Put another way, once you have all the traditional facts researched out and in front of you on the table, then what do you do from an imaginative research point of view to make all of it come to life? Traditional research will tell you the Titanic sank April 15th, 1912. Imaginative research will allow you to fill in your own imaginative circumstances around what might have happened when the Titanic struck the iceberg. So while Alan was working with the facts that rose from his traditional research, his imaginative research facilities were also at work building things around the facts that may or may not have been actually true, but they were imaginatively authentic because he was pulling from all the research that he did. So to give you an example of imaginative research, I'm going to shift away from Alan's research work around the Titanic and give you an example of another kind of way you can do imaginative research wherever you are. And you don't have to have a particular subject, topic, or story in mind to do this. What I'm going to do now is to give you a way to strengthen your imaginative research chops. I learned this exercise when I was attending a week-long poetry workshop facilitated by the poet Marie Howe at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. It was a rather large group, maybe a hundred people, and Marie Howe did a great job of facilitating it for us. So here's the imaginative research project she assigned. It was in two parts. Part one, imaginative research. Part two, create something from the imaginative research and get it down on paper. So here's part one, which will be easy for you to do. These are the instructions that Marie Howe gave us. She told us to go somewhere. It was summertime, so most of us went outside. And when you get to a place that vibes with you, pick an object in the place, sit there for 20 minutes, and observe it. Watch it closely. Look at it from different angles. Don't take notes. Don't do anything. Just watch it. Concentrate. Take in as much as you possibly can. I chose a small bushy plant to look at. I don't remember what species it was. It was green, had lots of stems. And as I sat there watching it, and here's the imaginative research, the plant changed form. I started seeing little villages instead of leaves. And then I noticed ants crawling up and down, traveling around the plant, and a few other insects as well. And I went from one place in the plant to another, to another, and I tried to pay close attention to the bark on the stems, how the bark changed when it touched the 
large trunk of the plant. I noticed the ants, the size, how many legs they had, how the leaves on the plant interacted, how the small stems connected to the larger trunk, the way the stems looked, the color of the stems, and how the entire proposition began to interact and move, and my imagination created all kinds of scenarios that existed inside this plant or on the plant as I was moving around. And I would look closely at one section, and then I would move to another section and look, and I realized as I concentrated on one section and forgot about the other sections, that was all that existed. And then when I moved to another part of the plant and looked at that section, it was a completely different universe than the previous section that I had looked at. Imaginative research. Things you don't notice when you first start to look become more apparent as you pay closer and closer attention to a plant or whatever object you choose to look at. I timed this exercise for 20 minutes, and when the 20 minutes concluded, I went back into the workshop area to see what we were going to do next. So with my imaginative research complete, here are the three steps Marie Howe told us to follow. Number one, describe the scene you just researched. Use as many details as you possibly can. And she timed us for 10 minutes while we did that. She didn't tell us she had two other steps in mind, so we all threw ourselves into it, describing the scene we had just experienced. So after the 10 minutes ended, she said, now take a deep breath, go back to your imaginative research, think about what you were looking at, and now I want you to take another 10 minutes and describe it again. Now here you might think, what's the point in doing the same exercise a second time? Well, as you might have guessed, the second time around was a very different experience. The description was similar to the first description, but it was also different. More build, more expansion, more imaginative engagement. For example, in the first piece I wrote about noticing the two different sections of the plant and how those two different sections represented different villages. In the second approach, second 10 minutes, I wrote about what those villages might be like, the people in them, the characters in them, all happening around me viewing this one plant. So when the second 10 minutes was over, she said, stop. We all stopped, and that's when we realized we had two different pieces, blending somewhat, and yet very distinct as well. Then came the third part of the exercise, which surprised us all. She said, now I want you to take a minute and think about somebody you really love, somebody very close to you, someone that you cherish. She said it didn't matter if it was a romantic relationship or a family relationship, a friendship. Whatever it was, pick somebody in your life that's very current, that you cherish right now, that you value, that you would fight for. So we all spent a minute or so thinking about that person. And once everybody had someone in mind, here was the third assignment based on our imaginative research. She said, describe what you were looking at, keeping the person you love completely in mind. And yet, while you describe the object... Do not mention the person by name or even reference the person. Just describe the object you were looking at 
while you are fully thinking about that person, fully engaged in the imaginative circumstances of that person you deeply love. But don't include that person in the description. And with that brief, she then gave us 10 more minutes to generate a piece of writing. Well, as you probably already figured out, the third piece of writing was very different than the first two. The third piece was full of emotion. It was full of, of atmosphere, full of desire, full of joy, full of advocacy, full of truth, emotional truth. Even though all I was doing and all the rest of the people were doing, just describing what we looked at. So we could not have accomplished that third piece without first going out and having the imaginative opportunity to do the imaginative research, studying the objects for 20 minutes. And then we had to write the first two descriptive pieces in order to set us up to generate the third 10-minute piece of writing, which everybody reported surprised them quite a bit because the subtext of all of their descriptions included the feelings they had for the person they loved, even though they never mentioned that person. So we had three different pieces of writing, all based on our imaginative research. Marie Howe suggested that later we take all three pieces and work them into one piece if we felt like that was something we wanted to do. And you can do the same thing if you decide to give this exercise a try. So as we close, I hope my comments around traditional research and imaginative research have given you some insight on how you can approach your creative writing. Of course, everything you do has to be done in your own style. Creative, how do you create things? And then how do you include what you create or what you imagine into some written text or whatever form you want to deliver it to the world in? So Stephanie suggests to us yoga and writing as a way to engage and expand the way you go about things. Alan Wolf shows us that traditional research combined with imaginative research can be very productive. And Marie Howe gives us the wonderful exercise in four parts. Go out, look at something, and then write about it three times. Describe it twice, and then think of somebody you love, and describe it a third time. And speaking of things you love, I love doing this podcast, and I love interviewing people, and I most especially love the idea that you're tuning in. So thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering i'm your host james nave always airing first on wpvmlp asheville 103.7 streaming online wpvmfm.org the voice of asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like kcei cultural energy radio coming out of taos new mexico thank you davine dial for managing wpvmfm thank you robin collier for managing kcei Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. And if you'd like to reach me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you would like to hear all of the shows I've aired over the last seven years, you can Google SoundCloud 
Twice Five Miles Radio, James Nave, and all of those shows will pop up on your screen. Seven years, probably 300 shows by now. And finally, I'd like to remind you we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, you can always go to imaginativestorm.com and there you will find plenty of resources, including a free workshop every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time. My creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and I gather on a Zoom call and we generate work for an hour. Actually, we only generate for 10 minutes and then we play around with it for the rest of the hour. So once again, thanks ever so much for being part of Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. And on that note, until next time, maybe I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Thank you.